Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. George Floyd's death, captured on cell phone video, triggered a civil rights reckoning the likes of which America hasn't seen since the 1960s. So it was almost fitting that the world seemed to be watching this week as his killer was brought to justice. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This was a powerful day in American history where I think America tasted justice uh, in one of these cases for the first time in a long time. So, now what? Not for the family or the people of Minneapolis. What now for America? I don't think one conviction enough can change how everybody feels, but it puts a marker in the sand. This week... Our in-depth conversation with the first and only African-American to be governor of New York, David Patterson. I want to ask you a very basic and very simple question. What is it like being black in America today? Well, <laughs> uh, what I would say is that... Uh... And yes... Every black American, even the former governor, has a story to tell about being stopped by police simply because of the color of his skin. What the Chauvin verdict and the death of George Floyd will mean in the fight to rid America of systemic racism where it exists. We have a pitched battle ahead of us, not impossible to win, but difficult to win. Welcome to 880 In Depth. I'm Tim Scheld from WCBS News Radio 880. And we have some important voices to hear from this week, including the head of the National Urban League, Mark Moriel, who we spoke to from Minneapolis a short time after the verdict this week. But first, even before we knew the verdict was coming so soon, Peter Haskell and I discussed getting on the phone to hear from former Governor David Patterson. He actually visited Minneapolis recently and spent time with the family of George Floyd while the trial was taking place. 
we wanted to speak to him and ask about being black in America. What has changed since George Floyd's death? What needs to change? And how can we heal? Our Peter Haskell got on the phone with the governor a short time after the verdict was announced in the case. Governor, when you heard the verdict, what did you think? I guess when I heard the verdict, I could have thought that I wish New York State could have done for Eric Garner and his family uh, what was done for George Floyd and his family in Minneapolis. But I have listened over the years to people like Dr. Martin Luther King, who have said that if you can't be positive about any kind of struggle, then you're not doing service to the struggle. This was the verdict that I think the majority of law enforcement itself thought was coming because it was right. And it was a verdict that hopefully will help to heal the family. And it was a verdict, hopefully, that will let America go back to what we were doing before Memorial Day of 2020. If you talk about healing, there was so much strife, so much upheaval, so much pain last year after Floyd's killing. What what can this do? And is one conviction enough to change the way people feel? I don't think one conviction enough can change how everybody feels, but it puts a marker in the sand that there's certain conduct that is so abusive, so depraved and indifferent to human life that it only took a jury four hours to condemn it and convict the perpetrator. I think if we can start there, we can move to a lot of other places, such as not always criticizing the police department, not talking about defunding an institution that can get better if we put some more money into community relations and uh, just throwing out this idea of abolishing the police department, which has got to be more insane than an insanity defense. In in terms of people of color feeling that justice can be served, what does this do? Well, I think there are those who really fear talking to the police at all. How about that African-American military officer who was stopped by the police and he put his hands out the car, but he told them he was afraid to get out of the car. He was telling the truth because there's been a lot of bad incidents over the years. Uh, One of them happened to my late father, who was Secretary of State and Deputy Mayor of New York City, but when he was 16 years old, he was assaulted by a police officer in front of 20 people who thought he had stolen a baseball glove that had his name on it. So um, I think that there, you, you always have to build on positive situations. This is positive, and I think that we can build on community relations from that. What do you say to folks who say, I want to take to the streets, I want to celebrate, I want to show my appreciation and there are concerns among police about what happens now. What would be well, your I think message? Those people, I think those people would like to uh, take to the streets to celebrate should go in and do so. I think as long as what people do is nonviolent and doesn't add to the violence, that would be a horrible way to remember this trial if anybody 
uh, is violent or unruly or uh, uh, unusually insulting to the police. Because in this case, uh, most of law enforcement privately and publicly expressed their dismay and how they felt that Mr. Chauvin um, depreciated the value of the badge, which we should all hold in such high esteem as we do. There have been a lot of police officers involved in a lot of deaths uh, of black people. Do you think this sends a message to cops that there is a line that can be crossed and you better not cross it? I think that the overwhelming number of police officers, particularly in New York City, have gotten the message over the years. I think the problem is not properly weeding out those who don't. And I remember when I worked for the DA's office, they had these police officers who they had sit on the desks because they had conduct that was unbecoming of an officer on duty. And they just found other things for them to do where they weren't near the public. Maybe we need to go back to that in very few, but still enough cases that sooner or later something happens uh, with those officers and then the whole department has to suffer for it. What is your hope after hearing this verdict? Well, my hope is that we'll take an objective look when these cases come up. I think the Brianna Taylor case is very unfortunate that they didn't move forward there. However, some of the most recent cases, I think that there certainly is some evidence that the police officers either made a mistake in one case or really did believe that the suspect had a weapon. And I think we've got to try to have an objective point of view case by case. And then we'll do a whole lot better rather than ganging up on each other every time there is an incident. You went to Minneapolis not too long ago. Why did you go and what did you learn? Well, I learned that there was a very professional atmosphere there. There seemed to be a mutual respect during the trial among the security people and those who came to watch the trial. The family were some very nice people, I've got to say. And they were uh, very grateful that we came there. And we prayed together, and it was uh, a heightening experience for me. I go back to my relationship with the Griffith family uh, after Howard Beach. I've stayed close with the uh, Gene Griffith and Chris, the brother of Michael Griffith. That was the Howard Beach case. And uh, they invited me and others to come back, and uh, they said that they'll be able to breathe uh, if there's a conviction and they would like to uh, celebrate justice. Since this trial has been going on, we've seen the police shootings of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, Adam Toledo in Chicago. What is going on here? I uh, think, Peter, that when there's a major shooting, we have to remember that there are police shootings all the time, and the, those who uh, died are not always black or Hispanic. So um, in, in what Martin Luther King, what made him so great is that when he marched and protested about particular cases, he picked the cases that he embraced. 
So, for instance, Rosa Parks was not the first African-American to uh, fail, fail to sit in the back of the bus in 1954. Uh, one woman punched the police when they were taking her off the bus, so she could never be the face of a movement. And another woman was an unwed mother in 1955. That wasn't going to go over. And King didn't want to stage an incident, so he waited for the right victim to make the case about segregation in our society. Here, um, some of the other shootings, in my opinion, don't necessarily meet the criteria that you can automatically say that the police reacted. With the young kid, if he did put his hands up, he then turned in the direction of the police that may have caused them to think that he was about to fire on them. And so what I'm saying is that uh, as tragic as the Floyd case is, it's a banner case for excessive use of force by the police. And um, while I'm not passing judgment on the other cases, I didn't hear the automatic anger and stress in those cases that I felt when I saw that 9-minute and 29-second video. I want to ask you a very basic and very simple question. What is it like being black in America today? Well, <laughs> uh, what I would say is that uh, <laughs> I was uh, 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 stopped by the police in 2013, and then a pedestrian, uh, they were basically yelling at me and uh, a pedestrian went up to them and said um, the pedestrian said uh, you really shouldn't treat any citizen this way least of all the former governor of New York and uh, the uh, police let me go and then as I'm walking away they asked me to come back and they said were you really the former governor of New York and I said yes and they said would you take a picture with us and I really wanted to say something uh, probably untoward, but I thought, you know what I'll do? I'm going to take a picture with them, and maybe that will help them to uh, pursue people who are committing crimes, not people who are walking while black. What happened in that case? What was going on? Uh, I was, I had gotten my hair cut, and uh, I forgot to bring my hat. So I was trying to run home. So I was running down uh, Lenox Avenue in Harlem. But, you know, I wasn't running that fast, nor was I carrying anything. And they stopped me and said they had to search me because there was a burglary somewhere uh, on, on 132nd Street or something. And I said to them, but I'm running in the direction of the burglary. How can I be the burglar? And they said, just do what we tell you to do. We don't want to hear any a comment or opinions from you. And uh, that's when the pedestrian intervened. What does this, this say to you? What does this tell you? Well, what it tells me is that uh, probably subconsciously people can, will jump to conclusions. So if they see an African-American American man running, obviously he must be running uh, uh, f uh, f away from a crime he committed, theoretically he could be running away from someone who was committing a crime against him. And uh, 
So that's what I was saying about subconscious perceptions. And by the way, I have a, a great deal of sympathy for the police because policing in this country started uh, with the concept that African Americans were subhuman, were lazy, uh, didn't want to work, and very likely to commit crimes. Those were the points of view uh, that were widely held in the, in the white community. Now, accountants, lawyers, teachers, they could have those points of view, uh, which I guess is their right as Americans, but never really have to interact too much with any of uh, these African Americans. Police didn't have that luxury. They were patrolling neighborhoods uh, in New York going back to the turn of the last century that were majority minority. And they carried the perceptions that people that lived in their communities into those neighborhoods and acted on them. And it's taken a very long time to uh, get policing to change in that respect. And uh, for the most part, I think, with the exception of these occasional incidents, the policing in New York is, is significantly better than it was 50 years ago when there was another uh, crime it occurred on June 16, 1964, when a 15-year-old African-American teenager named James Powell turned on a, uh, a water main in the street because it was hot, and the police chased him, and a police uh, officer named Thomas Gilligan shot him in the back. And then he kicked the body to roll him over to see whether or not he was dead, and that sparked a week of rioting that was so severe that even Dr. Martin Luther King didn't try to come in to stop it. As the feelings in the community boiled over after this incident that many people saw. And so uh, at that time, Gilligan wasn't even charged. They didn't even have a grand jury. And uh, if you look at what's going on today, it's monumentally better. It needs to improve, but uh, you would be a charlatan if you didn't admit that the police have done a lot to engage the community in this city. I want to ask you about uh, police in New York in a minute, but I, I am curious, what kind of conversations do you have with your friends about race, and how do they differ now compared to when you were younger? Well, um, I think uh, when I was younger, it was literally trying to convince my friends who were white that this type of thing went on. One incident that occurred when I worked in the Queens DA's office, my boss, the bureau chief of the forensic psychiatric unit and I went into court one day and he said, go up and ask the clerk what time you're going to call our case. So I went up to the clerk and the clerk says, go sit down and wake me a lawyer. Now, I'm standing there with a three-piece suit on, and I said, no, I'm not waiting for a lawyer. He says, go sit down or I'll put you in the pins. Now, the pins are rooms behind the courtroom that the prisoners sit in before they come in, and you will be invited to sit next to them. So I didn't want to go there, so I went and sat right down. And my boss, who was a right-wing conservative, said to me so that this court clerk could hear it, uh, Mr. Patterson, you work for the Queens District Attorney's Office. 
this man, and he pointed at the clerk and said, this man is doorman, and if he had a respectable living, he'd be a doorman at the Ritz or the Waldorf Astoria. Rather, he's a doorman for rapers, robbers, robbers, and murderers. Now, go up there and ask him about the case. Well, when I went up there, this guy looked like he wanted to jump over the, the uh, stanchion and kill both of us. But what I thought was that this debate that I had with my boss for two years that I worked for him, he saw what I was actually trying to explain to him, and he couldn't stop talking about it. And so I think a lot of times, as is the case in so many situations, we don't understand other people's plight until we're in their shoes. You probably hear this not infrequently. You know, you've got a group of people who say Black Lives Matter, and then you've got other people who say, no, 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 all lives matter. So describe the distinction, and what should the all lives matter people know about Black Lives Matter? Well, all lives do matter. The problem is that the way we have governed our society, some lives have mattered a little more than others. In other words, that there hasn't been uh, equal treatment. And I think that the frustration of that uh, statistically uh, actually channels itself into younger generations, which is why I think it's always important to stress to younger people that in spite of all these things, you can still achieve you can become a great leader or a great business person or a great performer or uh, a great politician. But I do think that there is a pretense that, uh, that um, the Black Lives Matter movement is a uh, voice for special treatment. I, I don't think it is that. I think it is uh, a cry for equality. I would say that that type of movement that really is almost Marxist in that you don't really know who the leaders are, you just know what the policy of the group is, is not as effective as having one strong leader like a Dr. King or a James Farmer or uh, you know so many uh, great leaders that we've had in this country, W.E.B. Du Bois and the NACP. Uh, I think that leadership emanates from the dreams of one person. Generally speaking, do you think when you see what's happening around the country, generally, do you see police as part of the problem or part of the solution? And more specifically, how do you see that in New York? I think police can be uh, very much part of the solution. I remember about three or four years ago, there was a group of people, they had a stand on 135th Street, and they were selling uh, barbecued chicken and, you know, barbecued products, and um, they uh, wanted to let me try some of the products, and the, these policemen came up, and they didn't know who I was, and they said to them, listen, if you're going to do this, you need a permit, and the people who were running the little uh, truck started to get defensive and the police officer said well no I brought over an application and all you have to do is fill it out and I'll come back and get it and I'll hand it in for you and they were so touched by it and then they offered the police some food 
And they said, no, we can't do that. We're on duty. And I looked at the police, and at that point, they recognized me, and I said, you know what? It will be the, their biggest honor if each of you took a plate. So in other words, believe me, uh, the, the um, infringements and the misconduct of a few have uh, too often been weighed more heavily than the great work of what is the majority of the department. And my problem with the department isn't that they can't weed out the few because that's always very difficult. My problem is that too many of the majority uh, cover up for them. Governor David Patterson wasn't the only black leader in America who visited Minneapolis to bear witness to the Floyd case and support the family. Mark Moriel is head of the National Urban League. He stood with the Floyd family in Minneapolis when they celebrated the decision this week. A short time after, he got on the phone with our Peter Haskell. We witnessed justice and accountability today here in Minneapolis. Uh, The jury did the right thing. And so it's a powerful day in American history where I think America tasted justice uh, in one of these cases for the first time in a long time. And uh, I'm proud of the work that the prosecutor, Keith Ellison, and his team did. Uh, I think it's significant that the public outrage, uh, the movement of people uh, in the streets, uh, the awakening in America's boardrooms, and university campuses, and neighborhoods over the last year uh, meant that we were at a moment where people were insisting in this case on justice and insisting that Derek Chauvin be held accountable. Uh, and, and indeed, he has been held accountable. Now, we will have to wait eight weeks to see how he is sentenced. And we think he should be sentenced uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a fashion that uh, sends a powerful message that uh, police misconduct uh, is not going to be tolerated, that murdering unarmed black men uh, is not going to be tolerated in this country anymore. You know, the video has been out there. We've all seen the video. In spite of that video, did you ever doubt that there would be a conviction? Were you concerned there would not be a conviction? I was, Peter. I would be uh, telling a yarn if I told you I was concerned that there may not have been a conviction because the history in these cases is not good. The history in these cases in fact is poor. Uh, most, most of the time the office is not even charged. Uh, when they are charged they're generally not convicted even in those cases where they're convictions. There are very very light sentences so uh, certainly I was concerned notwithstanding the fact that the evidence in this case was overwhelming. In the classic sense, this was an open and shut case. It was a case of overwhelming evidence, and the evidence was the best evidence you could get, a videotape of the crime taking place from beginning to end. We've seen other videos in other places that did not lead to convictions. Is there any kind of symbolism here about perhaps what might come in the future with the similar videos? Or is this just one case? I think, uh, Peter, that the resolve of the prosecutor, I think the fact that Keith Ellison, the attorney general, took this case over. At the very beginning, when the Hennepin County prosecutor had the case, 
you saw at the very beginning mistakes, uh, simple mistakes that would be made by the prosecutor, by the local prosecutor, which led people to believe that the local prosecutor was not serious about uh, about bringing a successful prosecution in the matter. Keith Ellison took over, put together an all-star team of both lawyers and expert witnesses, and I think that it made, it made a big difference. Uh, the other thing in this case that was compelling is that since Minnesota allows cameras in the courtroom, the world could see the trial. The world saw everything the jury saw, every single witness, every single examination, every single cross-examination. They saw every piece of video evidence, documentary evidence. They heard the opening statements. They heard the closing arguments. And therefore, you, in, in effect, in this case, you not only had 12 jurors in the jury box, you had a jury of literally hundreds of millions of people all across the country who saw what they saw. And, and I think that was a powerful, powerful, if you will, testament uh, to why this case, I think, marks a very special moment uh, in American history. Now, whether we learn from this, whether we understand from this, uh, how we proceed from this is the issue. On my part, we will be working doggedly to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And we'll be working, uh, if you will, doggedly to uh, push re-envisioning, reimagining, reforming law enforcement and policing in every city and every state in this nation. Uh, this is about uh, an America that respects its own people. We all want to be safe. We all want to be safe, but we don't want to be beat up. We don't want to be killed. We don't want to be maimed. We're tired of having conversations with our kids uh, who, in some communities, uh, don't know who they can trust. If you can't trust the police, who can you trust? We have got to make changes. And at this moment, uh, I hope it's pivotal. Mark Moriel with our Peter Haskell. We saved the last words this week for the distinguished professor of African-American studies at Vanderbilt University, author, academic, Michael Eric Dyson, who spoke to CBS News anchor Nora O'Donnell as part of the Floyd verdict coverage this week. He put the decision in perspective. This is not justice because justice would be the full restoration of that man's life and we know that is impossible to occur. Justice would be preventing this lethal possibility of occurring in the first place and preventing cops uh, through a system that supports their acts of terror to engage in behavior without being held to account. So accountability is critical. Justice will be when we have a potential in this society to prevent this kind of thing from happening routinely uh, and ever to African-American, to Latino, and anybody, for that matter, who's a citizen in this nation. You know, the Attorney General is saying we need societal transformation, enduring societal systemic change. That can't be achieved just through the justice system. It has to be achieved legislatively, not only uh, in Congress, but the type of police reform that takes years and years to pass. Are you more hopeful given what's happened after the past year. 
hopeful, yes, not optimistic at all. You know, Rhino Niebuhr, the great theologian, made a distinction between optimism and hope. Optimism is a shallow virtue. You put your finger in the air to determine which way the wind is blowing. Hope says, even against the evidence, you manifest the ability to believe, to imagine, to conjure a future possibility where justice will prevail. So in that sense, I'm extremely hopeful. But we live in a society where 43 state legislatures right now are preparing bills, about 100 to 200 bills, that try to reject the possibility of black people and others voting. The temper of the times is set against progressive realization of the goals and aspirations of the civil rights movement and the fundamental justice for black people in this nation. So we have a pitched battle ahead of us, not impossible to win, but difficult to win. So we've got to get together and make certain that we galvanize the potential of resistance that is afoot in this country now to make sure that we can make that justice come into a reality. And as you said, uh, Nora, it's not simply about police reform, it's about systems, it's about ways of thought, it's about worldviews, it's about perspectives, it's about deeply ingrained, deeply entrenched bias, it's about unconscious bigotry. All these things have to be addressed if we are to have real justice and real change and transformation in this culture. In-Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. Our thanks to David Patterson, who ended his conversation, by the way, with our Peter Haskell, this way. Governor, it's always great catching up with you. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Peter. This was great. I'm motivated now. (laughs) As are we, Governor. As are we. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Look for us on the new Odyssey app. That's Odyssey, A-U-D-A-C-Y. Just search in the podcast for 880 In-Depth. Have a good week and be safe. Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.